You're listening to Behold Diana. This is episode four. Chapter 4. Rainy River is a border railroad town separating Ontario from Minnesota. The Rainy River after which the town is named acts as a natural border. The farmers from the surrounding area are the wealthiest citizens and the big spenders. When they arrive in town to ship their produce to the larger cities of southern Ontario, they head for one of the two local hotels. On Tuesday evening, while I was playing the organ in the choir loft at St. Michael's Church, unknown to me, an American tourist was meditating in the nave below, listening to my playing. My tousled hair bobbed up and down as I fingered the keys of the console and stretched my legs to their farthest limits. I was so short I could hardly reach the pedals. Suddenly, standing at the top of the stairway of the choir loft, I saw the sexton of St. Michael's. He smiled. Here, Clifford, I have something for you, he said and handed me an envelope, generally used for Sunday mass collections. What is it, I asked. I ripped it open and there inside was a crisp American $10 bill. Where did this come from? A gentleman from the States asked me to give it to you. I was overjoyed. I had never had so much money given to me in my life. Money had to be earned, not given. I scrutinized the bill and wondered why he had given it to me. Did my playing remind him of someone? It was odd. Then I discovered he had enclosed a note that read, You may never know it, but your music has saved my life. I will never know what lay behind his generosity. Several weeks after this incident, whatever happiness lingered from this incident vanished forever. It was early in September. The days were getting shorter, and the chill of fall hung in the air. I was dressed in a lightweight zippered ski jacket and the inevitable blue denims. I was playing and skipping with a group of girls. Patrick, son of the local busybody, stood by. Patrick, noticing I was the only boy in the group, wanted to goad and tease me. He had already proven to me on several occasions, particularly during recess, his adeptness at hurting and re-hurting. But today, he was to surpass all his past performances. Hey, kids, he shouted at the top of his voice. You want to know something? Guess what my mom told me. Clifford isn't really the son of the Boilos. He's an orphan. Ha ha, Clifford is a bastard, chanted the girls. Clifford is a bastard. Stunned, the tears gushed down my cheeks, and in a dazed stupor, I stumbled back to the classroom into the arms of Sister Blondine. Sister, sister, tell me it isn't true. It can't be. Now calm down, Clifford. What's all the fuss about? What's happened? Come on, tell me. I looked up into her burning brown eyes in between heart-rendering choking sobs. I told her what Patrick had said. Mother and father had guarded the secret of my unknown beginning deep inside them. How Patrick's mother became privy to the secret is still a mystery. I was allowed to go straight home. I became hysterical. This was one of the first in a series of blows that life had aimed in my direction. I arrived home in a state of collapse. I told mother I had the flu and that Sister Blondine had sent me home. I said I was going to bed and asked her not to bring me any food. I'm just not hungry. I couldn't take my eyes off mother. For the first time, I noticed that there was no resemblance between us. Whereas I was short and chubby and very fair, she had olive skin and dark hair. The shape of her face was not the same, neither was the bone structure. Until now, I had never noticed these physical differences. 
Alone in my room, I cried myself to sleep until I was in a state of emotional exhaustion. The following morning, Mother made me breakfast as usual. For her, this was a normal day. For me, it was the beginning of weeks of solitary gloom. Several friends made well-meaning attempts to draw me out of my depression, but to no avail. I retreated farther within myself. The following day, Sister Blondine sent a note to Mother and asked her to come to school for an important discussion at 4 o'clock. Mother was convinced it was somehow connected with my grades and seemed rather annoyed with me. I was summoned from my classroom to the music room. Sister Blondine and Mother sat opposite each other in the only two easy chairs in the room. I sat on the piano stool. Sister Blondine tried to console me by saying that the child Jesus was adopted by St. Joseph. In a way, Clifford, you are very fortunate you were chosen by your parents to be their child. The other children had no choice. She suggested Mother and I go immediately to see Father Couture. She had already advised him of my love child status. As we left the school, Mother put her arm tightly around me and kissed me softly on the top of my head. I was enveloped in her soft body, and I knew just how much I loved her and how much she and my father had done for me. Oh, Clifford, I am so sorry it had to happen like this. I was always going to tell you myself. Father Couture's immediate concern was not so much for my anguish as for the thought that I might not be baptized. If this was the case, he explained, I was not a member of the Catholic Church and would have to be baptized. For all he knew, I might have been a Buddhist, although I think somehow this last speculation was highly over-exaggerated. Father Couture immediately sent letters to the orphanage in Winnipeg requesting copies of my birth certificate. Meanwhile, he advised me to stay away from the sacraments and not to serve as an altar boy until he had ascertained my true state of grace. The orphanage had no details of my baptism, and it looked pretty obvious that I was not a baptized member of the Catholic Church, nor a member at all. My deep-seated misery turned, unexpectedly, to elation. Mother Superior told me that arrangements had been made to have me re-baptized. Overnight, I became some sort of a hero among the other kids, a far cry from their usual victim of teasing and tormenting. The date was set up for the re-baptismal. Albert Haley, a local customs officer, and Olive Green, a former Carmelite nun, agreed to become my godparents. As I entered the church with mother and dad, all the kids from school were seated in the pews. As we walked to the baptismal font in the front of the church, I became aware of turned heads peering at me. A tingling wave of life swept over me. The service was in Latin, with Father Couture officiating. Holy water was placed on me as he intoned the special liturgy prescribed by the church for re-baptism. Following the service, Albert Haley gave a small party to which we were all invited. The rebaptism and the fact that Olive Green was my godmother gave me double status in the eyes of the kids at school. Olive, a widow, had been married to a financially secure, prominent businessman. After his death, religion became her main consolation, but ill health forced her to leave the convent, and she took the post as housekeeper to Father Couture. During her marriage, she traveled with her husband all over the world, and she used to come to school to speak about the various countries she had visited. She was held in high esteem by students and sisters alike, and I adored her. That summer, Mother took a job at a local apartment building as a superintendent and jack-of-all-trades. Bill Chrysler and his wife lived in the building and became close friends of Mom's. Agnes, Bill's wife, was the local hairdresser. One of her customers, Mrs. McLeod, the manager of the movie house, dyed her hair a flaming red, but was convinced it looked natural. She insisted that Agnes lock the doors while she was having the youth-giving color applied to her black roots. At Agnes's suggestion, I was employed as her assistant. 
I helped with shampoos and swept up the accumulations of multicolored hair that fell to the floor. Of course, I became aware of Mrs. McLeod's secret. She was terrified I would shout from the rooftops that she dyed her hair. This idea obsessed her, and in order to keep my mouth shut, she bribed me with free movie tickets. Every Saturday, I would go to see a movie. Between the tips and small salary at the beauty salon, the money from a bread route, and now free entertainment, I was convinced I had reached a pinnacle of financial affluence. I became the envy of many of my friends. I have never been able to shake off the influence Bill Chrysler was to have on my life. Bill was the teletype operator for the Canadian National Railways and the leader of the town band. He was held in esteem by most of the members of the community. Because Dad was away in the bush so much of the time, Bill became a sort of big brother to me. He used to take me to visit the railroad terminal and show me through the signal control station where the mazes of flashing lights, telephones, and other electronic gadgets were a source of delight and wonder to me. He became my hero. In order to bring me out of my shell, and knowing that deep down I was an actor at heart, he suggested I take baton twirling classes that were available across the border in Bodette, Minnesota. Bill offered not only to drive me there each Saturday, but also to pay the tuition. He was right. I excelled and became the drum major of the town band. Bill was my idea of a real man. Even at this young age, something stirred within me when I thought of him. Chapter 5. As it happened, Dr. Chalice, a general practitioner in Fort Francis, was also to have a great influence on my life. Dr. Chalice, in partnership with two other doctors, ran a clinic for the town and surrounding area. To many of his patients, he was both friend and trusted confidant. When I knew him, he was about 40, with gray streaked brownish hair. He was inclined to be stout and had a baby face and the sensitive hands of a surgeon. Born in England, he spoke with a very cultured accent. I had never heard well-bred Oxford English spoken before. To me, it was only heard in movies or on television, and I was captivated and intrigued. I have an excellent ear for accents and found myself articulating and enunciating very clearly and distinctly and parodying his intonations and inflections. To this day, I speak with a British accent that makes everyone assume I was born and raised there. At the age of 16, every Canadian male is supposed to be attracted to the opposite sex, be virile, aggressive, and above all, athletic. I did not have any of these desirable characteristics. The bevies of charming girls in the neighborhood and at school held no interest for me. I hated to leave Rainy River, for although our home was meager, Mother had managed to make it comfortable. The small house had a warm, lived-in feeling, but Dad's eyes grew worse. I missed my school and the nuns who had done so much to help me. It was a tearful day when I went to say goodbye to the sisters. Sister Blondine gave me a medal of St. Francis and a big kiss on the cheek. I blushed profusely. Puberty for a boy is a highly impressionable age, and I wore the medal around my neck for many years until my religious feelings changed. Fort Francis has a population of about 9,000 people. It is a pulp and paper town bordering on International Falls, Minnesota. In the summer months, it is a popular tourist area, with most of the visitors coming from below the border to enjoy nature's bounty. We moved there when I was about 16. The Ontario-Minnesota Pulp and Paper Company is the main industry in the town, employing several thousand people, many of whom cross the border daily. My parents rented a two-bedroom house on Humble Street, 
There was a small garden covered with tangled grass that Dad transformed into a thriving vegetable garden, an outhouse adorned the bottom of the garden. I attended Fort Francis High School. It was not a Catholic school, but I continued to attend Mass at the local church. On school days, when tennis, football, or anything else remotely athletic was played, just being there became a nightmare. I hated all these required subjects that were designed to build muscles, broaden shoulders, and in general put hair on one's chest. I have since spent a fortune having it removed by electrolysis. My only escape from this torture was via a doctor's certificate. I went to Dr. Chalice, who was Mom's doctor, to see if he could discover some dread disease for which I was suffering. Nothing too dread, just dire enough to excuse me from anything strenuous, like Jim. He discovered I suffered from undiagnosed transsexualism. He was already an expert on the subject, having studied with Dr. Robert Cowell in England. Dr. Cowell was one of the physicians to King George VI, besides being Roberta Cowell's father. Roberta, formerly male, had already undergone the sex change operation in Britain. I often wondered why Dr. Chalice, with his apparent sophistication, had chosen Fort Francis for his practice. From his background and training, I would have felt an exclusive practice in a plush hotel in Toronto would have been more apropos. As I grew to know him better, I realized that all he wanted in life was to help people. And as long as he made an adequate living, he was content. He also loved the outdoor life, and his fishing and hunting expeditions seemed to be his only form of relaxation. Last year, Mother told me during a telephone conversation that Dr. Chalice was dead. He had drowned while fishing on a nearby lake. He took a personal interest in me, and I became both his patient and employee. In the evenings after school, I worked for him as his part-time receptionist. My job was to answer the phones, book appointments for the following day, and chart patients on their arrival. I wore a pair of denim jeans and a t-shirt, and looked like a very normal teenage boy. He did a series of special tests on me at the local hospital. At first, he thought I might be a hermaphrodite, but once he examined me, he found out how wrong he was. I was physically better endowed than most boys my age. He wrote to his former colleague, Dr. Cowell, telling him about my condition and asking for advice. The reply simply stated that surgery was not for all and sundry and was not to be undertaken lightly. I was kept pretty busy. Mother became one of the members of the international team of Avon representatives. I helped her prepare the orders after they arrived from Montreal by packing them into small individual parcels for the local housewives. In my case, this had an added advantage because I used to sneak samples of lipstick, rouge, and nail polish. In the privacy of my room, I spent hours daubing myself with cosmetics. When I think of those early experimentations, I have to smile. To an onlooker, I probably looked more like an amateur female impersonator. I suppose these early tests with cosmetics were no better or worse than those practiced by any teenage girl at the same age. With the money I earned by delivering cosmetics for mother and being receptionist for Dr. Chalice, I began to acquire the basics of my first female wardrobe. I sent away for a wig I saw advertised in a copy of Chatelaine because there were no wigs to be bought in Fort Francis. The community was not known as the fashion center of Canada. I expanded my wardrobe to include nylons, shoes with spiked heels, dresses, and an assortment of seductive lingerie. I lived under the delusion that I was a full-fledged woman. All this was carried out in the secrecy of my bedroom late at night, after Mom and Dad were in bed. I did manage to summon enough courage to walk around the block one evening just before dusk. The grey light of the waning day blurred the vision of a transformed Clifford, replete with blonde wig, to any curious neighbors who might have been peeping. 
Halloween bestows a license on drag queens, transvestites, homosexuals, sex deviants, and of course transsexuals to dress up without too many questions being asked by the more conformist members of society. For me, October 31st was a day I rehearsed and waited for for several months. I knew that when I joined my classmates at a Halloween party that I would outshine them. I was certain none of the other boys had spent months before the mirror preparing for the annual charade. One of the boys threw a masquerade party at his home, to which several of us were invited. I wore a long, formal, white, potassoir gown, evening gloves, and carried a white, beaded handbag. My ensemble was correct in every detail. The party began at about 7 p.m. All the other kids were garbed in the usual Halloween costumes, mostly homemade of crepe paper. The more affluent had purchased masks and other accessories at the local 5 and 10 cent store. My host's mother and father were stunned in disbelief when they saw me. Joe, the local Don Juan of the high school set, displeased his girlfriend greatly by announcing loudly, Joan, you look just like Clifford. Despite this backhanded compliment, she married him several years later. On a dare, after leaving the party, we walked through the cemetery. We were scared to death and walked four abreast, tightly holding each other's hands. I was at the far end. It was the practice in the fall to open a few graves below frost level for winter internments. These would be covered with tarpaulins. Suddenly, without warning, I disappeared into a grave. I plunged into the cold, slimy water that covered its murky bottom. My friends saw me disappear into the ground, and they ran screaming toward the road. I was left all alone to scramble out, shivering, wet, frigid with fright. Thus ended my first formal evening out as a lady. Behold Diana is produced by Borderland Pride. This episode was a reading from Behold I Am a Woman, a novel by Diana as told to Felicity Cochran. It was performed by Jonathan Price of Fort Francis Little Theatre and recorded and edited by Caitlin Hartland. Our music is by The Night Driver and our sound was mixed by MJ Interactive.